right now it is time to talk to one of the highest-ranking elected officials in our state. She is the state's attorney general. Ellen Rosenblum, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. It's a pleasure. Thanks so, for having me, Jefferson. So I guess talk, I should say Jeff. You could, it, it, it's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. I know I've been wrestling with what do I do? My, had my older brother not already been named Lincoln, I would I would consider changing my, changing my name to Lincoln. That would feel weird because so many people in my family. And, and the weird thing, here's another weirder thing, is my brother changed his name to River a while back because I wanted to write under the name River. And now, oh so the name Lincoln is sitting out there. I could take it. But you it would could take it. But it's, it would, a, it's one less syllable might be a little easier. But it'd be it'd be just weird for you know people to be calling me by my brother's name. I am legitimately wrestling with what I'm supposed to do. Well, I love this conversation already because I used to change my name a lot when I was a kid. What'd you change it to? I changed it to Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> Under what circumstance? Oh, I just liked it. And little did I know that at the time anyway, that Deborah in the Bible is a judge, and I later became a judge. But that was not the reason I did it. I just got tired of Ellen, so then I kept El- went back to Ellen and just started changing the spelling. So wait. When anyway, you ch- I'm 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 back. To no, this is worth it. But no, it's when you names are a fascinating thing, aren't they? When you change your name to Deborah, how did that work? Did you just tell your teachers call me Deborah from now on? What did it? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did not tell my parents to. I just, but I did tell my teachers and my classmates, and they were they were great about it. So they did call you Deborah. So when you were at school, you were Deborah Rosenblum. And when you mm-hmm. went home. For about a year. For just about a year. Well, maybe I'll change my name to Deborah. <laughs> You're not using it anymore. Yeah, I never went to Debbie. But, uh, you know, it's great when kids have that um, sense that they can, you know, take control. And maybe that's a little bit about, you know, kind of where I ended up. Who knows? You have been serving as attorney general since 2012. Have you yes. ever seen a moment that has challenged your conception of how we should be thinking about the structures of justice than right now? Well, first of all, it's exactly eight years ago that I was sworn in, June 29, 2012. So Happy thank you for having me on this morning. Um, who would have imagined? Uh, there's no way I could have imagined at that time what things would look like now. Uh, how important our justice system would be. But let me tell you, four years ago, when I was reelected on the same night that uh, the current president, I should say office holder, uh, is, uh, was elected, um, there's been a lot of amazing things that have happened since then with regard to the rule of law. And thankfully, even this morning, uh, this is a great day, actually, because even this morning, the United States Supreme Court did the right thing in uh, the latest and a very, very important case involving the abortion issue. And so I am very pleased that the rule of law seems to still be alive and well. Uh, the June versus uh, Russo case was decided favorably to those who believe in reproductive freedom and rights. So yes, the justice system always has been very important, continues to be. Checks and balances, absolutely critical at a moment like this. How closely are you watching? Of course, you're watching as closely as some of us are when the Supreme Court announces an opinion. How close are you watching what's on the docket and even making predictions, even unofficially, on what they're dealing, on what they are addressing now? And any any 
crystal ball predictions, any even questions about cases still coming down or current feelings about the dynamic in the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, I'm not going to predict. Um, there's just a few re- important remaining cases, and my office is watching those closely, and I'll be, uh, you know, advised probably within the next couple of days they'll be completing uh, their, you know, their review. What are the key cases? Uh, most, well, most of the cases that are, were the ones that I had my eye on, though, have already been decided, such as the DACA case, so we were really thrilled with that. Of course, the Ramos case, which was our um, uh, unanimous jury situation. Um, so I would have to check in to find out what is still on the docket. But nothing that um, is, like, right in my plate at the moment that I'm literally watching minute to minute. But um, I can get back to you on that. But we've gotten, just in the last week, some, some really excellent rulings, actually. Uh, the LGBTQ case, that was a fantastic decision, as was the, uh, the DACA case. So I'm actually pleasantly surprised that the, uh, with the change in the makeup of the court, things are not going downhill too quickly. But uh, we'll say that uh, there's, def- there's, still, there's still some, some opportunities ahead there. Um, thankfully, our Chief Justice, um, Justice Roberts, uh, appears to uh, believe in stare decisis, which is, as you know, because you're a lawyer, uh, how important that doctrine is, that you know, the, a case that was decided just two years ago uh, out of Texas, the ruling today is based on the fact that it's essentially the identical case to the Texas case, which was called Whole Women's Health. So there's no reason, just because we have two different justices on the court, to decide it differently. That seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? But it wasn't necessarily. And now, as I understand it, the cases I know that Trump just submitted uh, support for, I guess, opposition to Obamacare, support for the position to overturn Obamacare. We know right. that they still are need to decide on electoral college freedom. If you're made an elector, can you vote on who you want, or do, are you legally bound? And uh, we know that there is still a ruling coming down on the president's taxes and whether Congress can, in fact, right. get them. Absolutely. Those are some that we are that, that I am still watching. Oh yeah, absolutely. No, they're real. You know, they always put off the the most important, difficult cases to the end of the term. How come? Because they're struggling, and that's where you have these plurality decisions and five or six different opinions, and it takes at least all day, even for the bloggers, to figure out what the opinion really means. And, and you, as you said, you served as a judge. Say more about that process of what is going in the, in those last weeks, in those last days. What is happening? Is the do they already know kind of how it's going to break down? And they're just waiting for people to turn in their term papers. Help people understand kind of the process at this point. Well, I've never been a clerk to the United States Supreme Court. There are several lawyers in Portland who have been, so I urge you to get them on your show because that's a good they idea. Will know how, they will know how the sausage is made. Um, I would just say that it does appear that it takes a while for them to kind of sort it all out, um, of different alliances, especially with two new justices. Um, it's, you know, it's fascinating to, uh, you know, to see Justice Gorsuch taking on the lead in a case where you would never have necessarily expected that. Uh, I think that some of the more senior justices are, are uh, delighted, uh, perhaps, but I don't know. Uh, they don't share that with me. Uh, the, the United States Supreme Court still doesn't have cameras in the courtroom, so they're not the most transparent uh, bunch. We know they're brilliant. We know they work incredibly hard. And we know that with two new justices, it takes a while for them to kind of get their bearings. It's like adding two new members to the family. 
you know, it's going to take a while to get it all sorted out and figure out, you know, who's, who's really in charge here. Speaking about what's happening in the family, we have had a couple of pretty significant shifts that have happened recently, well, more than a couple. New district attorney in Multnomah County suggesting by a huge margin, right? We've had election after election of essentially the anointed senior prosecutor being picked as the next Multnomah County district attorney. And that the person that might, you might've thought in another election would be that person getting, you know, not coming very close against Mike Schmidt, sort of a more activist candidate. And that was before the killing of George Floyd. That was before uh, weeks mm-hmm. in a row of protesting in the streets, demonstrating significant demand for transformation of our criminal justice system. How does that impacting your thinking? How is that impacting your office? Well, I think uh, Mike Schmidt's going to be a, a fabulous new district attorney for Multnomah County. Uh, I think Rod Underhill has been an excellent district attorney, as, when, as was Mike Schrunk. Uh, so, you know, the rate, this was really the first uh, con- seriously contested race for district attorney in over 30 years in Multnomah County. So, uh, you know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, well, this is what we, how it's been in the past. You can't do that, uh, Jeff. It's just simply uh, we don't have precedent, speaking of precedent. Well, we have, we have precedent of there not being a meaningfully contested election. That's right. Uh, but for the first time, there, for, in this case, it was, it was uh, a bit of a surprise. But, you know, uh, Mike won by about the same margin that I beat my opponent in uh, 2012. So it's not that big of a surprise when you have a more progressive candidate and one that kind of takes more of the law and order approach. Law and order approach in Portland is a a big no right now. Uh, And it was even before the George Floyd situation. Uh, It was uh, in the state, uh, at least in the Democratic Party, uh, back in 2012. So no surprise to me there. Uh, They were both both good candidates, certainly. Uh, Ethan Knight, by the way, was not in the DA's office. Currently, he has a U.S. attorney's office. He's in the U.S. attorney's office. So it's not like the chief deputy running. He has not been the chief deputy. So I think uh, he wasn't very well known. Uh, Mike wasn't all that well known, but he ran a really high profile campaign. So I'm looking forward to working with him. And I think we'll have a good partnership because we share uh, a lot of our our values and I think um, ideas for how to move forward in, in this moment. What is the what are the protests doing to your thought process? I want to get to some of the specifics, but just I'm sorry, thoughts. I can't. I couldn't hear that last question, Jeff. What are the protests? How are the protests impacting your thought process? And pause for just a moment as you think about it. Maybe not at all, right? Maybe all they're doing is awakening you to things you've been thinking about for a long time and putting you in a position to do things you've wanted to do for a long time. But when I've talked to legislators, when I've talked to members of the city council, we've seen people who've been the longtime advocates for reforming criminal justice, and all of a sudden the public demand for change even outpaces the bills and the proposals they've already come up with. And it looks like now they're offering kind of moderate proposals in a context when people are demanding real change, it seems, and it's impacting the thought process of a lot of people, including me. How is it impacting your thought process? Sure. Well, I think my import, most important role as attorney general and as a white female, uh, a privileged white female, is to listen and to be supportive of the community, of the advocacy community now. And that is mostly what I have been doing. Uh, I ha- am supportive of the reforms that are being proposed. I have studied them. I, we have been working very closely in my office through my legislative policy 
uh, folks, and particularly uh, Aaron Knott, with the advocacy community. We meet with them almost every day. We meet with the legislators. We worked on and helped uh, with the bills that were considered and uh, that some that passed, some that have been moved into um, you know, work, work group format. Um, at the request of the legislature in the past, I led the uh, very important task force on police profiling, and then uh, later I developed my own on hate crimes, both of which led to significant reforms. So I know the, the seriousness, of course, of these issues, and I have, uh, you know, seen our state's leaders being increasingly, increasingly open to reform, as am I. So I've been working in this, in this uh, vineyard, if you will, for years, and I'm happy to be involved, but I do not believe that I should be uh, in charge. Uh, I want to listen, and I want to learn, and I want to make sure that I'm helpful as we move forward, especially with this upcoming work group that the legislature just uh, assigned to look at the issues that would directly affect my own office uh, in terms of taking on more of the role of investigating and uh, potentially prosecuting um, officer-involved uh, deaths and serious physical injuries. So, um, you know, clearly it has great significance to, uh, to me and the work that I do. And, uh, you know, I've directed my legislative director to do everything that he can to support the, the People of Color Caucus at the legislature, which we did last week, and I think it, it went very well. What changes did you prioritize? Did your office get engaged with most in terms of the stuff the legislature just passed? Well, like I said, I'm trying to be a good listener and to be supportive of what the community wants. So there were six, uh, really six bills and the one that, um, you know, as I said, the one that most directly impacts my office, I would have to say, you know, we prioritize in terms of wanting to make sure that it uh, didn't um, go out too quickly without having really sorted through all the, the, you know, what it really means for, you know, the attorney general to take over uh, some of the authority that traditionally district attorneys and local law enforcement have had. So that's obviously a big one. But, you know, that's at the other end. That's at the, the not the the early stage of the issues of police brutality and, uh, you know, the, the problems with bias and cultural competency that have led us to where we are, and, and frankly, racism. So I think that some of the bills that relate to simply, uh, you know, taking a look at, at the arbitration function, the, the ability of arbitrators to overrule uh, disciplinary decisions, the ability of pol the police to use uh, certain types of, of uh you know, to overuse weapons and um, even even non-lethal weapons that are unnecessary with regard to peaceful protesters. Those are very important. Keeping track of data, this is something that Mike Schmidt and I share a real uh, passion for, which is making sure that we know what's actually going on. So we must keep track of the data, and that is has not been done well, even though my office has had some role in trying to, uh, you know, serve as a repository for uh, these types of incidents that have occurred around the state, we need to do a better job. And so having a statewide repository so that we don't hire police who should not be police officers in our communities. And we know that they've had a problem in one county or even in one state. Ideally, we need to get to that point where we know that an officer can't simply cross the border and apply for a job here in Oregon who's been in trouble and, and disciplined or suspended in another state. That is very complicated. And we aren't there yet, but we are there in, within the state. And so we're moving in that direction. Those are really important kinds of issues. So the issue that impacted your office most directly, as you said, that would be 
to move in direction of more independent investigations of officers, to move them out of the district attorney's office, out of the office that works most closely on a day-to-day basis, almost having a constituency as the police, and moving the investigations of deadly force cases and cases involving grievous injury, moving those to your office, the attorney general's office. And you put the brakes on that, right? Right To try to, as you said, to get it right. Is that fair? I don't think that's fair, no. <laughs> I wouldn't say I put the brakes on it at all. I would say that the um, People of Color Caucus and many other groups, including the unions, including um, other legislators outside of that caucus, had some concerns. Uh, we definitely brought to their attention the issues that uh, we need to be discussed, but we did not put the brakes on it. Absolutely not. So you share... Uh, we are moving forward with this along with with everyone else and i would say that you know if anything we were followers and not initiators and, and that's one the interesting dynamic here is i think uh, how do folks I, mean, I think this dynamic is really interesting right in the city the city said well joanne hardest didn't work on this issue uh, a bunch of white folks don't need to be in charge here let's see what joanne has to say uh she pushes for the changes that she pushes for a bunch of other people in the activist community like hey wait a minute we are trying to get more than a three percent uh, shift in the law enforcement budget, uh, and now in the, I, I've talked to now a number of people just over the weekend who said, yeah, which is my feeling, like, yeah, a month ago I would have thought this is a whole bunch of stuff, and now a bunch of people, in fact, even even the comments from Lou Frederick, from James Manning are like, this is just a start, this is just a start, which I read as, it ain't enough, it ain't enough. And, and, mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. dynamic about how do white allies show up? How do they engage with this stuff? So w- when you shared the information, you said, hey, here's some issues with this bill. What were, the, what were the things that you thought or that you still think needed to be worked out in order to consider shifting investigations of deadly force cases from district attorney's offices to the attorney general's office? Well, there are a lot of issues. And I was not, uh, I sent my policy folks in to, uh, to discuss those issues with the group, so I was not in the room, but I will tell you that uh, one has to do obviously with the funding and the resources for us to take that on. We are not currently set up to handle investigations of that uh, of that dimension. So obviously we need to expand our group. You know, sometimes I feel like uh, we're sort of like in the Wizard of Oz, you pull back the curtain and we only have just a very few people working in our criminal division. We have some great investigators, experienced prosecutors, but they're already super busy, and especially with the Ramos case and the fallout from that, we're going to be very, very busy over the next couple of years uh, helping out with those types of cases around the state. So that's one thing. Obviously, resources, we all know that, that that's critical. Uh, and so uh, that's the big one. Uh, so so that, that, no, but that's really helpful. And is that more, is it already clear about how much that would cost, how many investigators you'd need? Not at all. And, and so is the question figuring out what the resource request should be, or is the issue, is it just as important whether or not you're going to be able to get the money? It's both. Yeah. It's both. We have to figure out, you know, how it's going to work. And obviously you don't know how many resources you need or what you need until you know kind of how it's going to look. What's the format going to be? Are we going to be like when we, it, it may, det- it may depend on whether, uh, you know, how the, how the law is worded. Are we going to be doing the investigation ourselves, or are we going to be assigning it out to a special investigator? If so, who's that special investigator? Is it another uh, district attorney in another county? Is it, or, or the investigators that work for that DA? Is it going to be someone we bring in privately? You know, there's all kinds of issues that were, had not been determined. There was some very broad uh, language for us to work with, and we're going to work with that. 
but it isn't really clear. Keep in mind that there is no state grand jury. Anytime we handle a case, we go to the county where the incident occurred and we present the case to the grand jury in that county, unless for some reason uh, you can't do that. It's it's possible to, uh, you know, to to move a case to a different county if there's just too much, uh, you know, um, passion in that county uh, against perhaps the, the officer, given what may have happened. Uh, you can understand why the case might have to be moved. But there is no state grand jury. So being the state attorney general, we have to kind of figure all this out. And it's going to take a while. And it's going to take, you know, everybody being at the table and us doing a good job of listening to what it is that people want and what the legislators finally decide. And we will work with them and we will make it happen. What do you think are the next biggest changes that need to be considered? And I, I hear your posture of listening, and, and, I, and I respect it, and I share it. And I also think there is an opportunity for moral leadership. That doesn't have to be out front. That doesn't have to be doing all of the, you know, every press conference, say, hey, all these are my ideas. But they can include, you know, whether they're loud or quiet conversations saying, you know what, the Attorney General's office would support the following significant reforms. So if there are people worried that there'd be a big change here, don't worry, we can make sure this, we can vouch for these changes to make sense. There's a real opportunity, historic opportunity for leadership. What do you think are the next big changes that ought to be considered? Oh, I think we have our work cut out for us. Um, Jeff, with uh, just the follow-up from this session, there's going to be more special sessions. There's a 2021 session. We're already working, uh, you know, on on bills that we actually would have hoped could have passed, you know, <laughs> a couple of sessions ago, but things went went south for us. So we're extremely uh, busy, not only in the criminal justice arena, but we want to make sure that in light of COVID, that we have protections for uh, for Oregonians in terms of the economic. Uh, you know, downturn that we're experiencing. We're not even sure what our own budget's going to look like. Uh, hate crimes, as I said, we were involved in the hate crime uh, task force. We now have new laws. We have a hate crime hotline. We have calls coming in constantly now, hundreds of calls to our hate crime hotline about the discrimination and the racism and the just horrible things that are happening out there. Southern Oregon, as an example, you know, we're here up here in Portland. Things are really bad down there. Uh, you know, people have actually had to, to leave, uh, you know, their homes and, and move because of some of the, of the racism down there. When, when even a white family uh, gets involved in trying to support the black community, they've been, they've been attacked for that. So there's, so, you know, we, we have a lot of problems in the state and we cannot sweep them under the rug. And thankfully, people are now stepping up and going, okay, we've got to deal with this and we've got to listen. And once again, uh, you know, I think the Attorney General, uh, anytime I say something, obviously it has some, some power, some influence. So I want to be really careful about what I say. I'm not even certain what the priority should be because I haven't heard from everyone yet. And being in COVID and being in sort of this isolationist situation makes it harder. You know, I've learned Zoom and I've learned Microsoft Teams and my office has just become incredibly nimble and we are doing the best we can. But this is not, this is a difficult time. And so we have to make sure, first of all, that people are safe and healthy. We can't just assume that this reopening is like the end of, of a pandemic. It absolutely is not. I'm very concerned about that. So there's a lot that we need to do. My main job right now is advising state government, giving legal advice to the governor, to the Oregon Health Authority, to, you know, to the legislators if they ask for it. So... I have my work cut out. No, it's, it's got to be and the most I'm, challenging by the way, time. I think I mentioned that I'm running for a third term. 
So I'm hoping that I'll be in a position to be helpful with the experience that I have and hopefully the, the energy and the passion that I still have for the state and making this a safe, healthy place for people to live yeah, this and is also a, to thrive. And feel free to disabuse me of this impression, but this has got to be the most challenging. I, I should always say one of, because maybe someone will bring something else up, but, but I can't think of another more challenging time in a number of fields, to be sure, but a more challenging time in the attorney general's office than right now, where you have overlapping public health crises, public health pandemics of the of how we stand up for and protect the lives of our people. How do we stand up specifically for black lives? And how do we make sure we navigate our way through a justice system in the context of COVID-19? Your work is absolutely cut out for you. And I want to ask you about the COVID-19 stuff before we wrap. But before we do that, what are, is there any discussion right now that you're aware of on reforming Oregon's system of qualified immunity? Is there any discussion about reforming Oregon's use of force statute when it comes to law enforcement? Those are two of the big undone, undiscussed topics in the last legislative session that have come to me most frequently. Absolutely. I think um, immunity got kind of pushed out. It's uh, a little more complicated than first meets the eye. Um, so, yeah, I think that's going to be coming up for sure uh, in these next sessions, uh, especially in 2021, if not uh, if not before that. And on the use of force, absolutely, that has to go, that, that plays into the, uh, the whole subject that we were discussing earlier of what, uh, what our authority is going to be when it comes to these investigations and prosecutions. If you don't have the underlying structure and standards the way they need to be, then no, it doesn't matter who does the investigation. You're not going to be able to end up with a case that people are going to ultimately say that justice was done. So we absolutely, that's a part of the, my understanding is that that will be a part of the work group discussions, and we will be uh, taking a look at that. This really has not been examined since uh, 2007, when in fact it was Hardy Myers, my predecessor, one of my predecessors, who uh, took the lead. So uh, proud to follow in Hardy's footsteps. It's been uh, you know over a decade, and this is our moment. We need to we need to do this now. Black lives do matter, uh, and I am you know I'm there with the community. But again, I'm not the kind of person that's going to jump in and say, "Here's how we're going to do it." I want to be a good listener, and I will be uh, continue to be supportive. And I think if you ask anyone at the uh, who works with legislative committees, we are big part of just about any one of them that has to do with laws and guess what all of them do so qualified immunity you think that that does merit a revisiting you think it does merit reform and same thing with use of force statute uh, that you think both of those merit some reform i think that the qualified immunity merits uh examination and uh discussion i'm not i haven't decided where i come down on it it's as I said, it's way more complicated than first meets the eye. What's the what's uh, the most complicated part for people who are just like think about it as a yes or no thing? What's something that you fear that too many people are missing? Well, I think we just want to make sure that people are safe. You know, I am the uh, attorney general for the people. I'm the people's attorney. I look out for uh, consumer protection. I want to make sure that you know if I don't want any uh, either state agencies or or you know private businesses. To, uh, to think that they don't have to look out for consumers in the way that they have in the past uh, and to make sure that people are safe and, and uh, protected. So I do worry about those kinds of changes. 
I know that that's, for example, something that the Trial Lawyers Association is concerned about as well. On the other hand, I want to make sure that uh, we continue to be able to operate and function in this uh, in this new world. And there's just so many uncertainties with COVID in the aftermath in particular uh, and the reopening. And so I'm very concerned about that. So there's a balancing act, I think, that needs to be done there. And we need to look at that closely. But that discussion is happening. You said qualified immunity is going to be up on the docket to be considered and the use of force statute as well as moving uh, investigations into your office and the resources and the discussion about resources. Those at least are going to be things that come up. Anything else that people should be aware of in that discussion? If not, let's move very quickly before you have to run away to anything people need to understand about what's happening around COVID-19 in your office. Right. Um, well, I think we've really covered uh, quite the gamut on that topic. So yeah. if you're good with it, I am. It's your show. Yeah. Um, and then as for COVID-19, oh, my goodness, you know, uh, this has been a whole new experience for us. As I said, a big part of our work is advising state government. I think you're aware that, just to take one example, we had to defend the governor's executive order after a judge in all the executive orders, it turns out, after a judge in Baker City invalidated them. Um, so you can see how important the work that we do is. You know, we, we didn't just have to work smart. We had to work extremely quickly uh, in our, you know, our, our response to the coronavirus uh, in the state would have collapsed if that judge's ruling had been upheld. And so I was really proud of my office for jumping in and making sure that we responded quickly, brought a mandamus action, and got a, got a quick ruling. I was, I was pleased as our Oregon Supreme Court uh, was just incredibly responsive and realized the, the seriousness uh, and importance of that case. That sort of thing could potentially continue. Uh, hopefully not. I think, I hope the message was clear. Uh, there's also the whole area of consumer protection. We just uh, issued a press release on Friday referring to six cases involving false promises of COVID-19 treatments and cures. Um, we brought uh, some consumer actions and gotten what, what are called uh, AVCs, assurances of voluntary compliance, that these companies will stop making these false representations. I think you know that we worked on price gouging. Thankfully, that seems to have calmed down a bit and people aren't being gouged for trying to buy essential products. So those are just some of the, um, the issues um, related to COVID-19. My office uh, you know, is, is always... Uh, going to, to uh, be, you know, keeping, keeping its eye on our, you know, protecting consumers, particularly, it's, you know, particularly seniors, but now it's really everybody because we're all impacted and particularly communities of color who have just taken the brunt as always of um, this type of a, of a, of a disaster. Uh, I'm also involved, I think you know this, as the um, co-chair of the Democratic Attorney General Association. So I'm involved at the national level in leading uh, the AGs. So when there's an issue related to COVID, we work together. We meet every Tuesday morning by phone and we have joined together on numerous actions. For example, uh, advocating for frontline workers with respect to the meat and poultry processing plants, uh, defending reproductive rights against attacks in light of COVID, uh, defending the environment in light of COVID. We've filed lawsuits. We've joined actions, usually at least 20 or 25 uh, AGs joining together in these uh, issues, uh, mitigating the economic fallouts from COVID. All these things are going to continue because unfortunately COVID is not over. And we have to be aware of that. And let me just put in a plug. 
people really need to understand why it's important to do things, not just to do them. Uh, and so please make sure that since you have a bully pulpit of, of x-ray radio, that make sure that people understand why it's important to wear face coverings. Uh, when they go out and about uh, and they are not able to socially distance. It's turning out to be probably the most important thing to do right now in order for us to uh, be able to successfully reopen. And so, I don't know about you, but it's so exciting to drive down a street and see some businesses open, some restaurants. But I also worry every time I see that. Yeah, we've got to, I mean, I will certainly pile on. What we know now is apparently it takes about a thousand particles uh, to transmit the virus. If everybody's wearing masks, that limits the opportunity for you to get those thousand particles significantly, right? I mean, if you even cough through a mask, there are going to be some particles that get out, but not a thousand. And the reason we're seeing the spread within small groups, family groups, friend groups is because they can create, you know, a little melange in the room, right? They can sort of breathe a bunch and then eventually you get it. You know, might only get 120 particles from one friend or family member from somebody sitting next to you in a restaurant. But if you get nine more of those, all of a sudden you got enough. And I don't mean to simplify it, but I do mean to simplify it, at least for understanding. So I will pile on to that. Attorney General, would love to have you on again before the election to get in to the range of issues, because the questions that we're getting in from listeners really are bearing on on police reform and so let me just close out with this and you and you can close out with your thoughts on it two areas of questions we're getting in specifically one is how much do you think it's going to cost how much funding do you think it's going to require i know it's probably premature to put a final number on it but even just kind of ballpark what might the range be and the other is how can you make sure that your office is doing a thorough and unbiased job when it comes to police accountability those are the kind of the groupings of questions we're getting and we'll close with your response I have no idea how much it's going to cost. Uh, you know, I mean, we're—it's not like we're already not already doing uh, these investigations. We just have to, again, sort of like when you talk about, you know, defunding. We're not defunding. We're moving money around to where we think it, it's going to be most effective. And so we need to make sure that it gets to where it needs to be in order for us to do the job well. And I don't even remember what your last question was. <laughs> the other one like was a really big one that could take another whole program. Well, yeah, but you, it'll just give you your last thought. But how uh, how do you do? How do you ensure the attorney general's office is doing its best job to ensure police accountability? Right. Well, look, as I said, I've been working uh, in these areas pretty much the whole time I've been AG. So you have a seasoned, experienced, uh, progressive attorney general in office. Uh, and I think that, you know, the proof is in the pudding. I've been able to show that uh, I can lead uh, groups that have come up with proposed legislation in the area of police profiling that is now uh, working, I'm not going to say necessarily perfectly, but a lot better, uh, hate crimes. And now in this area of, of uh, police accountability, I think that we can uh, continue to work and demonstrate that our office uh, is is apolitical. We are not a politicized office. Uh, I learned that at the knee of Sid Lezak, who hired me to my first uh, prosecution job when he was the U.S. attorney. I'm very proud to run the kind of office that we have, uh, where you know there's there's high morale because people uh, do people are professional. They do their work, whether they're teleworking or whether they're on the you know at the office. And I think that you can just you know be hopefully as assured as possible that you have an attorney general's office that listens and that works hard and that is uh, experienced and qualified to help take the state forward. This is the most challenging time ever, as you've said. Uh, But the role of attorney general is not to 
uh, you know, take charge of the law. It is to be the chief officer of the law. The law is already there. Uh, it's called the rule of law. And so as long as we're following the rule of law, and as long as we are making sure that policy changes are made as needed and that resources are provided in order to carry out those policies and that we have good courts, which we do, to interpret uh, statutes where they need to be interpreted and perhaps uh, were maybe somewhat hastily uh, drafted and not fully uh, you know, understood, then I think we're going to have the kind of system that we can be proud of. But at the end of the day, we have a state that has a bad history, a bad history of racism, of, of uh, anti-Semitism, of um, you know, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, we have to be able to find a way not just to move past that, but to understand it, to educate our children so that you know, never again are we, do we find ourselves in the kinds of situations that we've had right here in the state. We talk about George Floyd, you know, off in Minnesota, which is, you know, over 1,000 miles away, maybe almost 2,000, but we've had our own horrible situations. You know what they are. People listening in today know what they are, and we need to make sure that they don't happen again on our watch. Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum, thank you so much for joining us. We've got to have you on again because we. I also want sure. to talk about non-unanimous jury non-unanimous jury decisions and the impact oh, that's, that's, that's happening. That's old office. news now, but we're working very hard to make sure that every case is looked at, and uh, we've got uh, we've got a lot of people working on that too. So thank you so much. I'm really glad that that we now have unanimous juries in Oregon. That is a a some cause for celebration, and long overdue. Be well. Let's talk again before the Thanks, election. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. Take care. Take care.